My name is Rob Heron. I'm one of the associate pastors here, and we've been going for quite some time through the book of John. It's a lot like climbing K2, if not Everest. There are paths like themes going up the face of the rock. It gets steeper as you go along, and now we find ourselves at the peak. All of the Gospel of John is about the person and work of Jesus Christ. John gives sign after sign, evidence showing that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, co-equal with the Father. And all of the Gospel of John calls for a response. Believe. Believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and you will live. Here at the peak, there is the most intense, you might argue that this is the climax of the entire gospel in this passage, sign, evidence, pointing forward to who Jesus is and his work, his divinity, his lordship. And so the call to believe in many ways is at its most urgent here. In John 20, 19 through 31, if you would read with me. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word because your word is truth and the truth sets us free. We pray that we would behold your glory and believe, and that your spirit would apply your word to our hearts so that we would believe and live. And we ask this in your name. Amen. What would you say if I told you that currently living underneath the floorboards of Redeemer's Sanctuary is a giant magical turtle? This turtle underneath the floorboards, holds up the retaining wall and is why it hasn't crumbled yet. This gigantic, magical turtle comes out at night, only at night, and climbs a gigantic fence post. You can't hear this turtle sliding around underneath the floorboards because of the groaning of the AC, which apparently isn't groaning that much this morning. What would you say about this stealthy, giant, magical turtle? 
You might say, Rob, that is ridiculous. And now I question your perception of basic reality and your value as a person. First, that's harsh. And secondly, why shouldn't you believe in a giant magical turtle? And you might say, because there's no evidence for a giant magical turtle on a fence post. None of us has seen this turtle. They just don't exist. And I might respond, well, then why don't you tell me why you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Why should I believe in the resurrection of Jesus? There's no evidence that any of you have seen that he was raised from the dead. None of you have ever seen anyone raised from the dead. People don't rise from the dead. It just doesn't happen. So, I might argue, it's no more ridiculous to believe in a giant magical turtle or a flying spaghetti monster than it is to believe the gospel. Many of you have heard, maybe even used this argument. Uh, Richard Dawkins, an atheist, popularized this argument referring to the flying spaghetti monster, and his point was this. We don't believe in magical creatures because we don't have any visible evidence for them. And rightly, if any of you were to believe in a flying spaghetti monster or a giant magical turtle, we would question your sanity. Well, Christians have been getting away for a long time with believing things, namely the resurrection of Jesus, for which there is no visible evidence. None. So faith, believing, is ridiculous. This isn't a new way of looking at belief. Archie Bunker from the 70s show All in the Family, defined faith as what you wouldn't believe for all the world if it wasn't in the Bible. Believing without seeing is ridiculous. And it may not be immediately clear how we respond to this kind of objection because we are, as Christians, believing what we have not seen, namely the resurrection of Jesus. So the question before us this morning is this. Can we believe without seeing? Can we believe without seeing? And I want to answer this question by looking at three things from John 20, 19 through 31. The content of belief, the standard for belief, and the goal of belief. Content, standard, goal. So let's first look at the content of belief. And there in verse 19, this is the same day that Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene after he rose from the dead. And the first thing that's of note is that the disciples are in a room with the doors locked because they are afraid. It says, for fear of the Jews. They are expecting at any moment the Jewish authorities to come and arrest them or harm them. So the implication is that they aren't expecting Jesus to come and appear before them. But with absolute suddenness, Jesus appears through locked doors, through walls, seemingly out of the air itself. He comes and stands in the middle of them. How does someone appear through a locked door, through a wall, or out of the thin air? Some have taken this to argue that John is saying that Jesus has this ghost-like, airy, less substantial body. But verse 27 obliterates this. When Jesus says to Thomas, appears to him and says, put your hand in the mark in my hand and in my side. The wounds that Jesus received at the cross are still there. The Jesus who appears before them is the same Jesus that they walked with, lived with, ate with. And yet he has changed. Walls, doors, 
The laws of nature themselves, they can't obstruct his presence. So you could say that he's not less substantial, but more substantial. You could say that they have never witnessed anything more visible than what they're witnessing in front of them right now. And on on that basis of seeing the risen Jesus, they believe the content of his message. Where he says to there in verse 21, peace be with you. That the peace he promised them in chapter 14, peace that Adam lost in Genesis 3. And that Adam failed to attain perfect peace with God. Jesus has accomplished. And the proof is the mark in his hand and in his side. That he declares to them the, the content of his message is that they're receiving, they will receive the gift of the Spirit. Perfect presence, perfect welcome into God's presence. Verse 23, he declares to them the forgiveness of sin, so sure that they, as his apostolic representatives, will declare that forgiveness as a free gift of the gospel. This is the content of the gospel. And the disciples hear it and rejoice. And yet, all of these unseen realities of the gospel, peace, presence, forgiveness, they are unseen realities. Can you see peace with God? Can you see the forgiveness of sins? Can you see the Holy Spirit? No. Then why do they believe? It's on the basis of the risen, seen, infinitely substantial Lord resurrected Jesus that they believe the unseen content of the gospel, which is more substantial than anything in this world. C.S. Lewis wrote an imaginative book called The Great Divorce, and in it he pictures a fantastical version of life after death. And in it, the main character, the narrator, is starting out in the gray town, a dismal, hellish place where he and other passengers get on a bus and they ascend to a heavenly country. And as they ascend from gray town to the heavenly country, their bodies and the bus around them become more transparent, more airy, ghost-like, less substantial. And arriving in the heavenly country, they're greeted with overwhelmingly beautiful landscape and vibrant, painfully vibrant colors. And stepping out, the narrator's feet are pierced by the grass on the ground below him. The grass pierces through his airy, transparent feet. And C.S. Lewis's point at this point in the book seems to be this. The stuff of heaven isn't, is not less substantial than the stuff of this world, but more substantial. The stuff of heaven is not less visible, but more visible. And this is important because we might assume that believing the gospel means that we are believing in things that are less substantial than what our eyes see. Believing in peace with God and forgiveness, even the resurrected Jesus, it's less substantial than what my eyes tell me. But John says the opposite. He says that the resurrected Jesus is infinitely more substantial than the stuff of this world. And so the content of his gospel is infinitely more substantial than the stuff of this world. And we may not see Jesus yet face to face, but the disciples did. They witnessed, and they didn't just witness the resurrected Jesus and say, oh, how interesting. We don't usually see someone rise from the dead. They beheld his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. On the basis of what they saw, the infinitely visible, 
substantial Jesus, we are to believe that the gospel is more evidentially sound than what your eyes see. Putting it another way, the gospel is way more believable than anything else in this world. That's what John is telling us. And this is vital because the content of what our eyes see so often pulls us away from believing the gospel. Because like the disciples, our eyes, what they, what they see, make us fearful. And where are you fearful? Where are you anxious? Financial crises. The threads of our lives seeming to pull apart. Sickness. People walking away from the church. What our eyes see may seem to pull us away from the content of Jesus' gospel. But John is telling us as, as real as those things are, as heavy as they are, Jesus is infinitely bigger and better. And his gospel is infinitely more substantial than even the hardest things that we see. Even the most fearful things we experience. And so his call to us here at the beginning is believe the gospel. Believe the witness here that Jesus is that much more substantial. So that you may believe that peace with God. You're welcome into his presence. The Holy Spirit. These are so much more real than even the most seemingly vibrant, painful, real things that your eyes tell you. And as we believe, those things will become airy and transparent in comparison. So that's the first thing, the content of belief, the content of the gospel, which is the risen, visible Jesus and his gospel, which is more substantial than this world. Let's look at the standard for belief, because why should we believe the witness of the disciples? We notice here in verse 24, for some reason we don't know why, Thomas was not with the disciples. But in verse 25, they tell him, we saw the Lord, and he responds with a demand. He says to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hands, hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas has set up his own standard for believability. For when he would believe, he says, I want to see him for myself. And not only that, I want to touch the wounds. It says, literally put his hand inside the wound, which is an intense standard. But there it is. As we read this, we might relate with Thomas and feel for him. And, and to a certain extent, that's very good. Thomas gets a bad rap, doubting Thomas. But we can't blast him for wanting to see the risen Jesus himself. can't say, I can't believe he wanted to see Jesus. What a chump. What a lukewarm believer. All of us want our belief in Jesus to be confirmed with sight. But the problem is not that he wants to see. The problem is that he sets up his own ultimate standard. I will never believe until I receive the evidence I require. That's the problem. But what does Jesus do in response? You look there in verse 26. Eight days later, Jesus performs the same miracle, appearing substantially out of nowhere into their middle. And he says to Thomas, peace be with you. Peace be with you. He says it to all of them and to Thomas. Peace be with you. Jesus declares the gospel to Thomas. He doesn't reject him for his rebellious standard. Instead, he meets him on that standard for the sake of what he wants for Thomas. 
There in verse 27, he says, okay, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas says, I want to see and I want to touch. And Jesus offers him all that evidence. But what does Thomas do? In verse 28, without any mention of him actually touching the wounds, Thomas provides what I think is the most incredible confession of Jesus' divinity and lordship in the whole gospel. Maybe the whole New Testament. My Lord and my God. Thomas said, I want to see and I want to touch. But apparently, he didn't need his standard met. He just needed to see Jesus. But Jesus sets up a new standard in verse 29. He says to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is given in the form of beatitude. Thomas, you think that you need to see me with your eyes to believe, but I say that it is better, it is blessed to believe in me without seeing. Now, is Jesus blessing naivete? Is he blessing ridiculous belief? No. He's blessing his own standard. That the ultimate standard is the standard he gives, which is his word provided for us through the Apostle John. When I was six or seven years old, I liked to try to get God to meet me on my level. I would sort of play a game with God. I'd be sitting out on my parents' porch at night. And I grew up in the church. I was taught that Jesus died for my sins and rose from the dead. But through much of my childhood, it just seemed a little bit iffy. And so I wanted God to confirm for me that I should believe and make this a big part of my life, apparently. And so I would pray to God and say, okay, God, if you really want me to believe, give me a shooting star. Or set that tree over there on fire. Because I was one of those kids that liked to see things burn. Or make me taller. God did none of these things. God did none of these things. And so my faith was not strengthened. At that point. And not because God didn't give an eight-year-old a vision of a burning bush. Not because he wasn't evident. But because I was acting childish. As though I could set up my own standard for believability. And I was in no position as a six or seven or eight-year-old to give that expectation. Or to set that standard. And neither are we as adults. Here at Redeemer. But yet we so often attempt to set the standard for when the gospel is believable. When life is peaceful, it seems more believable that God is at peace with us. When life is more or less carefree, it seems so much more believable that God cares for us. We set the standard in a a quid pro quo kind of way. God, I, I will obey you and trust you and believe in you. If you endorse and conjure up the vision I have for my life. And when that fails, it seems like the deal was, was broken because God broke it. We have standards that we set for God. And yet, like Thomas, they make us blind. They don't help us see. They blind us from what is evident. Then when we set the standard that God must make our lives the way that we picture them as the perfect vision for our lives, we miss the joy of the gospel. We miss the joy that attends the gospel when we say that my standard for my life dominates God's standard. We miss the peace 
that attends the gospel, when we set our own standard for holiness and sanctification, meaning either I say, I should be so much further along than I am now. I should be so much more mature in my faith. And I beat myself up. And I miss that God, God's standard is perfect. And he works in me according to his timing. But also I might say, you know, I'm basically okay. I'm doing all right. Soothing myself. And then I miss the reality that God has a standard of perfection for all of us to be conformed unto the image of Christ. And either way, I miss the peace of the gospel. Maybe I set the standard for myself and certainty. That when I find it completely reasonable to believe the gospel, then I will believe. And so we hold back and we miss the reality that I am not Jesus. And so I don't get to set the standard. Ultimately, the standard that matters is the one that Jesus sets. And that's his word. And Jesus promised to us is that when you accept my standard, not your own, and when you subject your standards to mine, you will be blessed. So what is that blessing? Well, let's look third at the goal of belief. We've seen the content, we've seen the standard, but now the goal of belief. Believing is never an end in itself. We like to make it an end where I believe in a way that makes me feel satisfied that I've used my reasoning and my deduction and it makes sense to me. But that's not the goal of believing, to feel like you're a reasonable person. And what is it? Well, John provides us plenty of evidence. He says in verse 30, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. There's an overabundance of Things that he could provide as testimony that Jesus is divine, is the Lord of all. But that's not the point of what he's writing here. That what he has given was written there in verse 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The goal or end of belief is life in Jesus' name. And Jesus stresses this further, moving back up to verse 22. When Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. The outpouring of the Spirit doesn't occur until Pentecost in Acts 2. But Jesus appears to be symbolically picturing for them in advance what it means to believe in his resurrection life. Which is that they must and we must be made alive by the Spirit. The word there in verse 22 for breathe is the same word used in the Greek translation of Genesis 2. When God breathes life into Adam. It's the same word used in the Greek translation of Ezekiel 37. When the prophet has this vision of dry, dead bones being raised up to life through the breath of God. When we believe, we must be made alive. But John's also pointing out the goal or the end of belief. Which is life in the spirit. Life in Jesus' name. That's the goal of belief. It's a professor at Covenant Seminary named Jerem Bars, and he tells his story of how he came to believe in the gospel. When he was a young man in the 1960s, he was steeped in postmodern thought, which in his British context meant primarily that there is no absolute meaning for existence or life itself. And with this view of the world, he saw everything as empty and darkness and despair. And growing in despair, the young man, he went out to a cliff in Manchester called Albany's Edge, and he prepared to throw himself off the cliff and commit suicide. 
And he writes in this story of his uh, beginning of his conversion. He says, It was a day in January when I got there. It was very cold, just above freezing, but the sun was shining. I stood on the edge of the cliff ready to cast myself over, but then I was struck by the beauty of nature before me. I thought, I've got to keep searching. There's got to be a reason why this world is so lovely. Disbelief had led him to the edge of destruction and death. But what brought him back was recognizing that he had been blind to the beauty of God's creation. And literally stepping back from death and destruction, belief meant life. Providentially, Professor Bars knew some Christians and they began to tell him of what they believed about Jesus and he was converted. But for Professor Bars, believing wasn't a matter of coming to a satisfactory decision. No, there at the cliff, believing was a matter of life and death. The goal of belief was life. That he went from being blind to the reality of life itself to seeing it with all its vibrancy and its beauty and, yes, its pain. The believing, he saw life for what it really is, created by God for his glory. And more than that, he saw and knew that Jesus is his redeemer, the one who gives him life. So that's the goal of belief, life. And we're wrong-headed to make believing an end in itself. As though, again, being self-satisfied were the point. But we're also wrong-headed if we think that believing the gospel means that we throw away you know, all the overwhelming evidence about what reality is. No, we believe so that we will begin to embrace reality for what it is. But even more than that, believing the gospel is about seeing Jesus by faith. We believe for Jesus' sake because he is the one who gives us life. Here in part in an eternity fullness with his life-giving, renewing presence. The goal is life, knowing peace, knowing our sins are forgiven. The goal is a life where his plans are better than your plans, his ways better than your ways, his grace and mercy more substantial than your failures. That his presence with you is more real than your pain, more real than even his presence with the disciples in this room. Because his spirit is with you and in you. The goal of believing is a life where you know that Jesus loves you and is for you and will never leave you. This is so important because I have to make it clear that believing the gospel is not about certainty. We might be tempted to think that I believe so that I can stop worrying about all the uncertain things in my life. But Christians, are you still uncertain? Do you still have uncertain threads in your life that at times feel like they're going to pull apart and bring you to destruction? Speaking for myself, yes. Believing the gospel is not about being certain in yourself or in your life. The only certainty is Jesus. The only certainty that he promises is that he is certain. He is raised from the dead by the spirit of glory and he will certainly not change. And he will certainly not leave you. That is the certainty that we're given. And with this certainty comes life because it is his life. So how do we experience this life? This morning you are not 
a follower of Jesus, the answer is this. Believe the gospel. It really is that plain. If you believe that he died for your sins and rose from the dead, then you will have eternal life in his name. But for those of you who are followers of Christ this morning, the answer is believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. And this means, one, that we accept the content of John's witness here and the whole of Scripture. That we get the gospel into our system however we can by going to community group, coming and hearing the word preached, where we preach the gospel to ourselves. That we go and find other believers who encourage us and challenge us with the truth of Jesus. This is what we need to accept the content. But secondly, we must this morning subject our standards for believability to Jesus' standard. Whatever that standard is, that we say, I will only believe, or I will believe to the extent that this is present in my life, we must repent and lay this down at Jesus' feet, subject it to him. There is no other standard that's ultimate but Jesus. The third, believe for Jesus' sake. Don't believe to be self-satisfied. And don't believe as if you could believe perfectly in the first place. Believe for Jesus' sake. Because he loves you and wants to give you his life. Well, how? How could we possibly believe any of this? Maybe we come back to the beginning and it just... how When so much of what we see seems to pull us away from this, there's so much pain and sickness and division and hurt and harm in this world... And our eyes tell us so many different things. How can we believe this? There's a story from a long time ago of a father who gave good and wise counsel to his daughter. He saw his daughter moving towards self-destruction, and he warned her against it, and he spoke the truth in love. When she would sneak out of the house, he would wait up for her, not to scold, but to embrace her and welcome her. When she insulted him, He listened and spoke kindly to her. And the rebellion escalated to the point that she stole all the cash and savings that he had underneath his bed, and she took it and she left. Many years went by, and she had spent all of the money, bringing herself to shame and ruin. In a desperation, she went back to her father's house, expecting the locks changed in a verbal beating. And what she found and said was him waiting at the porch. And he ran to her and he wrapped her up in his arms so that she could feel the shabbiness of his clothing and the thinness of his waist where there had been so little money now for him to afford good meals. And she could see and feel the premature whiteness of his hair and the deep lines marked into his face, wrinkles carved by sorrow at her absence. And she could see and she could touch. And the father looked at her and he said, do you believe that I love you? And she said, yes, father, I see that you love me. Our Lord who who died for our sins still has the marks of his love for you. For all eternity, he is marked out with proof of his love for you. That he gave himself, that he rose for you, so that you would have life in his name. Believe and see the God who loves you. 
believe and see the one who is marked with love for you. For believing is seeing. And all of us who believe one day will see him face to face. So the question, can we believe without seeing? Believers, we must believe to see. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us that you, all of us who are so much like Thomas, that we struggle to believe you do not reject us. Instead, you preach the gospel to us. And that you promise that your spirit is with us and that one day we will see you face to face. So we ask that you would give us greater belief, greater faith, so that we would behold your glory and live. And we ask this in your name. Amen.